Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are tackling the Big Four. First published on January 27th, 1927 by, of course, William Collins and Sons in the UK, and later the same year by Dodd in the US. However, it's a little bit trickier than that because the book is actually an edited compilation of a serialized short story collection that ran in, of course, the Sketch magazine between January and March of 1924, and it was called The Man Who Was Number Four, only to much later, of course, then be compiled with the suggestion and assistance of Christie's brother-in-law, Campbell Christie. So, yeah, this is an interesting one in terms of the timing. Basically, This book, even though it was published directly after the murder of Roger Ackroyd, was pretty clearly written before the murder of Roger Ackroyd. We know that the short stories that that make up the novel were written several years before, but it even seems like the actual compilation of the book itself was potentially done before Ackroyd. And the reason why this the timeline gets a little tricky here is that this is a, around the period when Agatha Christie was going through a really tough personal time. This is when her husband Archie left her for another woman and said he wanted a divorce. She very much did not want to divorce him. Uh, Their daughter, Rosalind, was still very young. This is also when she very famously disappeared for a week, and we are, we promise, going to be covering that in another episode. A little bit out of order in terms of the chronology, but, you know, this is the period when that's all happening. So that very special episode will be coming soon. But essentially, once that period was over, which, by the way, also included the death of her mother, she didn't really have the mental wherewithal to start writing another book. So this is why she decided to put out The Big Four. And there's evidence, even though no one's exactly sure, that The Big Four is actually the book that she compiled when she was trying to burn out her bodily head contract. And we talked about this earlier when we were going over The Secret of Chimneys. That was, in fact, the last book in her contract, but she mentions in her autobiography how she had kind of slapped together another book and she knew that it wasn't going to be accepted as one of the books, but that it would burn one of the number that she was under contract in terms of having to offer to them. And she doesn't come out and say that that was the big four, but a lot of people think that it was. But in in that scenario, it would actually predate the secret of chimneys as well. Correct. The writing of it would predate the writing yeah. of The Secret Chimneys. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. so in other words, the publication history of this and the editing of this and the writing situation of this book are all extremely unusual. Yes, very, very unusual. Keeping that in mind that this has this odd sort of, this book has this pastiche quality to it where it's a number of short stories patched together. Our synopsis is going to reflect that odd quality because this episode would be three hours long if we tried to give a detailed synopsis (laughs) of every single short story that's patched together here. Suffice it to say that there's an overarching story, which we will go through in a second and give the broad outlines of. And that overarching story is classic Christie thriller spy sort of adventure plot. Interestingly, this is a Poirot 
Poirot novel. So this is the first time that we've put Monsieur Poirot. <laughs> that, that, this is the first in time. A spy novel. Yeah, it's the first time Christie put Poirot in a spy novel. But yeah, that overarching story is classic Christie thriller, and then each of the short stories within are little miniature mystery puzzles. And we're going to focus on one of those mystery puzzles, and otherwise just sort of take you through the broad strokes of this overarching story. All right, just the setup of this, which, believe you me, the setup alone is complicated. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Captain Hastings is now a successful farmer in Argentina with Cinderella, uh, and he's made a business run to Paris, but then decides that he's going to surprise his dear Monsieur Poirot in London, as it's been a year and a half. And boy, howdy, is Poirot surprised, because he himself was literally walking out the door to take a trip to South America at the behest of A. Ryland, the American soap king, in part because Ryland offered a ton of money. But I also just want to immediately interrupt because do you think um, Abe Ryland, the American soap king, is any relation to Ferris Bueller's Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago? <laughs> maybe, maybe that was inspired by Christie. <laughs> I legitimately wondered that. I like strongly, strongly hope that that's true. Anyway, he was offered all this money, but he also really missed Captain Hastings and wanted to surprise visit him too. There's a lot of Poirot and Hastings love in this novel, which we, which we will be noting. That's really throughout. a nice part of it. Yeah, right. it's one of the best parts of of this novel, which isn't saying much, but it is one of the best parts. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately or not, right after their reunion, a man staggers into Poirot's flat and promptly collapses, but not before muttering Poirot's name repeatedly and scribbling the number four. He also, by the way, has written down Poirot's address, which is given as 14 Faraway, not 28 Whitehaven (gasps) Mansions, because that is where Poirot moves to later. So this is an early... Poirot address, and I was very surprised that it was not Whitehaven Mansion. I know, shocker. Shocker. Anyway, the bedraggled man tells our two detectives that there's an international criminal organization, something along the lines of the Illuminati or something equally elaborate and ridiculous, called the Big Four, made up of four people. Li Chang Yen, a Chinese political genius, that's number one. A man who is depicted by a dollar sign and a bunch of stars and stripes, which means he's either Kesha or an American. (laughs) Uh, Well, I guess Kesha is an American, so an American other than Kesha. That's number two. Number three is known to be a French woman. And number four is known as the Destroyer. And after all of that, and this man is just like basically collapsed, they get a doctor check on the man. And the doctor's like, oh yeah, I'll just check back on him in a few hours. Go on your big South American vacation while this guy is like passed out in your flat. And Poirot's like, okay, so, yeah, I can't go back on my word. Super important. <laughs> right, right. Um, to the Soap King. And so Poirot and Hastings head to Southampton. So Hastings is going to see him off until Poirot realizes all all of a sudden that his sea voyage is actually a ploy to get him out of the way from investigating this massive international conspiracy theory. So they jump off the train, (laughs) rush back to London, and find, unfortunately, their visitor is deceased and a gentleman from the lunatic asylum is inquiring about him. Yeah, and already we're like 10 pages into the story and it's so bizarre because there's no reason why Poirot realizes at the last minute that this is probably conspiracy which is very un like normally he would be able to 
you know, understand the situation and what's going on from the get go. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just already the there's a tension in this book by stuffing Hercule Poirot into a thriller plot that just never gets resolved. And honestly, at least for me, never really works. And it's just it, it, what it does is that it highlights the ridiculousness of these of these thriller plots. And, you know, we seem to be constantly harping on the man in the brown suit as one of the few thrillers that works. But I think part of that is because it is these standalone characters who Christie actually creates for very much for the thriller plot and it works and it fits and here you get a little bit of a you know a square in a round hole feeling with Poirot dashing about on a train and speaking with lunatic asylum keepers and thinking of things at the last minute so like it's it's already uncomfortable <laughs> right and then and then to make things even weirder we have the jumping off the train the dead man the lunatic asylum guy um they call up because they have a corpse and they're flat they call up um inspector jap <laughs> he very casually informs them that oh you know what i like totally recognize that dead guy he's a british secret service officer who's been missing for like five years And then Poirot realizes that the man was killed by cyanide and that the gentleman from the loony bin was, in fact, the destroyer. Number four, the destroyer. So the international conspiracy is on and Poirot, Hastings and Jap are all set to unravel this thing. And (laughs) at this point, things get way more insane. We're going to really gloss over things and, and just say this. Uh, there is a French woman, uh, the number three in question, who is named Madame Olivier, and she has a greater mind than Marie Curie and is a French national treasure as a chemical scientist. She is assisted by Countess Rosikoff, who is a previous Poirot nemesis from a short story called The Double Clue. And we'll talk about this a little later when we go over the many, many ways in which this novel is stuck in its own time. But there's a lot of emphasis placed on how brilliant a criminal Countess Rosikoff is. But I am going to push back on that. We can talk about that later. We eventually find out that number two is none other than the soap king Abe Ryland, the American millionaire. Then Hastings essentially gets knocked out a lot. There's a lot of Hastings passing out in this in so this story. So much. It's <laughs> he, clobbered um, over the head. He would have to go through so much concussion protocol if this oh were a sport because, like, yeah. I mean, if he weren't Poor already Hastings. a little soft in the head, he certainly would be after this sequence of events. But he gets knocked out, and um, various henchmen of the Big Four take him back to this lair in Chinatown, and they threaten to torture him unless he lures Poirot to said lair. Hastings, of course, is an, as a gentleman and a soldier, so he caves only when his wife is directly threatened. But even then, he manages to warn Poirot at the last minute. Poirot subsequently, by the way, reveals to him that he had Hastings' wife, Cinderella, put into hiding months previously to make sure that she was fine. Inexplicably. Yeah. Inexplicably. <laughs> and inexplicably. Poirot and Hastings are then the victim of an exploding matchbox. I hate when that happens. And uh, <laughs> upon waking, uh, Hastings is told that Poirot has died. Hastings is, of course, devastated. Just uh, pause, pause for a moment i know we're speed summarizing but poirot is dead right you know that's hastings is told he's dead that is that is a plot twist in this that is a plot twist in this and also what i was especially annoyed about when when that plot twist came about is that hastings attends poirot's funeral and we are told 
nothing about it. I know that Christy does not really love setting a scene or including much description because she always has another plot point to, to move on to, and that's fine. I generally love that about her, but come on. It's Hercule Poirot's <laughs> very public funeral, and the only detail he gives is that there's an incredible number of floral bouquets. That's like literally the only detail. Like A lot of people attend, and there's a ridiculous number of bouquets. That's it. <laughs> Well, Missed opportunity. I mean, I, I guess we learned that Poirot is quite beloved and popular. I guess. The funeral happens, and everyone tells Hastings that Poirot's died, and he should save himself and stop investigating the Big Four and just go back to Cinderella and his life in Argentina. He very pig-headedly refuses until he gets a letter from Poirot himself, having written this with his foresight, knowing that Hastings wouldn't want to go back. Poirot tells him to leave, so he finally does. He gets on a boat only to run into... Poirot! Poirot! Yay! So they're reunited. He wasn't dead after all. And then at that point, they hole up together in the Belgian countryside for a long time. A few months. That's the other thing that's bizarre about this story is the the very bloated timeline here. It takes about a year for this story to take take place. And also, keep in mind, Captain Hastings has a wife in a successful ranching business in Argentina, supposedly. I know. So who's overseeing that or keeping his wife warm when he's holed up in the Belgian countryside. I, I couldn't tell you. So they hole up in the Belgian countryside, just the two of them, and eventually the Big Four's machinations have become advanced enough that it's time for them to travel to yet another lair. This time it is the secret headquarters of the Big Four in a snowy Italian mountainside, which reminded me of nothing more than Inspector Gadget and Dr. Claw. That is probably that only seems- a reference that Americans of a certain age are going to get. Inspector Gadget. <laughs> I'll get you next time, Gadget. Next time. (laughs) By the time they get to the snowy Italian mountainside, there's there's a big hotel next to the cave where the big four are um, sequestered. They are felled by yet another match. Um, This time they're sitting at a table, and the dreaded number four slash destroyer uses a match to create another diversion and drags Hastings and Poirot into said lair in the mountainside, except that it isn't Hercule Poirot. It's his hastily mentioned twin brother. Um, Because, like, 20 pages back, Poirot mentioned to Hastings, hey, you know that I have a twin brother, right? And that his name is... Whatever the French version of Achilles is. I think it's probably Achille. This is another, yet another moment in Christie when she directly references Sherlock Holmes because Poirot even makes a joke and says, didn't you know that all famous detectives have to have secret lazy brothers who are actually more brilliant than the world famous detective? So this is a clear, very winking reference to Mycroft Holmes. And it seems that there's been a switcheroo done so that it's Poirot's twin brother who's now trapped in the cave with Hastings in the Big Four. So Hastings triumphantly tells him that Poirot is actually outside and that the place has been surrounded by police because they knew about this lair all along. And the Big Four are kind of running around trying to deal with this as uh, people seem to be invading the lair. But the clever Countess Rosikoff realizes that actually this is the real Hercule Poirot. 
And it seems that at that point, all will be lost and poor Poirot and Hastings will finally be be offed for real. But Poirot all of a sudden is able to tell the Countess Rosikoff that he can reunite her with her long lost son, which is literally brought up in that moment. Who We've she never thinks heard is, about this before. Who she thinks is dead, basically. Yeah, she thinks the long, her son is dead and then he produces a photograph and she can, I guess, see that it's her son who's older. So he wasn't dead because Poirot had the foresight to actually look into her past to be able to bribe her with something really meaningful to her if such a situation of being trapped in a cave and needing to get out, you know, ever ever came up. So it's just insane. But the Countess, she allows Poirot and Hastings to escape. They barely get out before the mountainside blows up, killing three of the four members of the big four. Li Cheng Yen, the number one, uh, is still in China, but we learn later that he commits suicide. So the big four have been defeated, hooray, and Poirot and Hastings will live to see another day. That is actually the story of this Hercule Poirot, (laughs) quote-unquote, mystery, and it's insane. I mean, it sounds like every element of it we just made up, and it really felt a little bit like that reading it I think it seemed like a soap like a terrible soap opera plot combined with like Austin Powers yeah oh it has a I mean it has a total exaggerated James Bondian Austin Powers Spectre Gadget kind of feel to it and and again and it's so heightened because it's Poirot so we I mean I will just point out there the I for me the low point of the novel is this sequence when they're they're trapped in yet another this is we haven't even mentioned this secret lair that they got trapped in but at some point in the middle of the story when they go to Paris and they're dealing with Madame Olivier who's number 3 Oh that's a secret lair too. In, <laughs> that's a secret lair and she entraps them and she is essentially about to kill them and then Poirot says could you um you know before Whoa. before we die many people are are often allowed to smoke a cigarette could you just take a cigarette out of my case and put it in my mouth and she obliges because she's an idiot as all villains in these ridiculous sorts of thrillers need to be and he then informs her i guess through his cigarette by the way so the whole time you must be talking like that through a cigarette that the cigarette, in fact, is a blow dart that um, <laughs> has poison in it. It's like a it, there's a poison arrow that he can then blow through the cigarette to kill her because I guess he also has incredible aim and really strong lungs on top of everything else. Well, and apparently, and she, apparently, those were not filtered cigarettes because man. I guess they I guess they weren't filtered cigarettes. And she's like, "Oh crap! Oh well, I guess I have to let you go." He's like, so now you need to undo my handcuffs. Or how about just run behind him and be out of the aim of the supposed dart? This was so bad that I was convinced that at least after the fact, Poirot would admit to Hastings that he had been bluffing. But no, we, there's, there's no bluffing. That was, that was an actual thing that happened in the story. It was, in fact, an actual thing that happened. But yeah. we should also mention that because these were serialized, each chapter... They're not really, it's not smoothed out like that well. I mean, there are kind of transitions, but they're kind of aren't. So each chapter has a marginally self-contained plot, usually involving number four offing somebody. The pattern of these is that it's a mystery puzzle involving a murder. And the culprit at the end is always number four and he gets away. And uh, many of the mystery puzzles are clever and pleasing 
in the way that Christie short mystery puzzles often are. There was one we wanted to highlight because it's interesting and also a little insane, but clever. And it's one that's also very much highlighted in the adaptation, which we will get to um, in the Suchet series. And that one is the chess problem. It's actually pretty clever, if insane. Basically, the setup is two grandmasters were playing chess, an American, Gilmore Wilson, and a Russian, Dr. Svarinov. Mm -hmm. And Wilson died of a heart attack during the game, despite the fact that he was very young and healthy. And Jap and Poirot both obviously immediately think that that's fishy. It's believed that the intended target was Svarinov, who has a lot of enemies. He fled the Bolsheviks, and he was, in fact, rumored to have been murdered but he instead toughed it out in Siberia for a few years to the point where he's now nearly unrecognizable. He's aged so much. And Savarinov is so uncomfortable being in public that he's refused to play chess for an audience in many years. So that is a huge clue, very much in keeping with a traditional Christie clue. If someone is rumored to have been murdered and nearly unrecognizable, it's a pretty sure thing that <laughs> that person is not that person. There's something fishy going on with Savarinov if he's been out of the public eye and is now an, uh, not recognizable compared to what he was before. So we should be suspicious of him. So Poirot and Hastings and Jap go to visit the corpse at the morgue. He has a burn on the finger uh, of his left hand. And amongst his belongings is a white bishop that had been found clutched in his hand when he died as he was about to make his move. We also find out from Jap that he was left uh, that he was left-handed. So, dude has a burn on his hand. He died of a heart attack. He died clutching a white bishop in his death grip. Probably those things are related in some way. This isn't your typical poison case. So Poirot asks to see the chessboard slash chess table, which is very beautiful and covered in inlaid squares, and it's been delivered as a gift only a few weeks previously. Um, he's also finally allowed in to interview Savarinov. Poirot asks him how far into the chess game it was, and uh, could he please have a description of it? Savarinov hesitates. Poirot has to rephrase to ask about the gambit. The Russian then describes it as the Rui Lopez, a famous opening. So the deduction here, uh, well, there are several. A new table means that the table is there for a reason, murder. <laughs> and <laughs> That reason being murder, yes. That reason being murder, and no grandmaster would hesitate when asked to describe a game, particularly one only a few moves into a very famous and widely known opening. In other words, the game ended so quickly that even if you knew almost nothing about chess, you would know the first few moves. Right. So piecing together, you know, our previous deductions about the fishiness of Savarinov, we're now beginning to realize that Savarinov didn't even need more than a rudimentary understanding of chess to play the little bit of chess that had been played in front of an audience. Things are beginning to coalesce, but let's continue. Poirot and Hastings return to their flat where Jap has left word that Wilson was not, in fact, poisoned. Hastings is also shocked to discover that not only did Poirot not return that beautiful white bishop from the beautiful chess set, he stole its mate to see if they were exactly alike, and they are not. Poirot measures them in a balancing scale and learns that one is heavier than the other, and it's heavier because it has a metal rod in it. 
And what Poirot then learns after examining the table more closely is that the table was designed to electrocute its player if that bishop with the wire in it landed on a special rigged square. Poirot then asks for a chess book, which for some odd reason Hastings <laughs> just has on hand. From South America? To see the Rui Lopez... Yeah, to see the Rui Lopez opening. Basically, the Rui Lopez opening shows that it was entirely predictable which square that bishop with the wire would have been placed on at the point at which Andrew Gilmore did so. He didn't have to memorize how to play chess for more than five moves. That's, like, what's important because once you get to pass a set moves, then he would have to make an in-the-moment decision about chess defense. And And he wouldn't be able to do that because Savarinov is, in fact, not Savarinov. He is number four, the destroyer, which is how all of these mystery puzzles end. So there are a whole bunch of these. This is probably the best out of all of them, but there are a whole bunch of these stories. I quite enjoyed the one that hinged on a leg of, a frozen leg of Oh, that one's a good one. And the the butcher. That was also enjoyable. Yeah. So, I mean, this story is is very readable and it's very enjoyable, the the novel overall, because these these little short mystery puzzles are quite pleasing. It's just that the way that they are strung together is unconvincing and ludicrous. Well, there's um, some suggestion, right, that her brother-in-law actually possibly was helping with the writing of it. Help, yeah, yeah, that helped the writing. I mean, the theory that she wrote that she strung this together in the you know the weeks leading up to and perhaps even the days after her infamous disappearance would lend themselves to the idea that she was so out of it that she had her brother-in-law. Interestingly, the the brother of her estranged husband, this wasn't her sister's husband, this was her her husband's brother, um, help with the writing. If she had actually written it as that book that she burned in the bodily head, then perhaps she had a bigger hand in the writing. Maybe he polished it and, and polished it in a way that she wouldn't have. We'll never know. But but yeah, I'm, there may be his hand in the actual writing of it as well. Even given the ludicrousness of that overarching plot, there are a couple of things I wanted to point out that I found interesting. And I think you could even use to comment on Christie's work as we've read it thus far. And that is that I think one of the reasons why the overarching story feels so weak is that we never really get a specific sense of what the big four's villainous plot really is. And that's a problem we've, we've come across in a lot of these thriller stories, but I actually think it's at its worst here. For example, in the secret adversary, the first Tommy and Tuppence story, mysterious Mr. Brown had the specific purpose of upsetting the British political order via the Bolsheviks. The colonel in the man in the brown suit was aiding a South African revolution in addition to various other dastardly criminal deeds. In the secret of chimneys, King Victor was a jewel thief. You know, these people all had specific things they wanted to do. Here, they're really just bad. At one point, she says that, um, what they want their what they want to achieve is the disintegration of civilization, which I, I don't know. To me, just sounds like what a fourth grader would say when they're <laughs> trying to say like they're really, really, really bad people. Um, and then much further along in the book, we actually get a contradiction in terms where she, she tries to spell out what the big four actually want to do, and she says these four are banded together to destroy the existing social order and to replace it with an anarchy in which they would reign as dictators. 
which I, I know I'm being a bit pedantic, shocker, but you can't be the dictator of an anarchy that's that's like an actual contradiction in terms. And again, it feels a little bit like someone who's just using words to say, like, this is going to be so bad, it's going to be so crazy. And, um, you know, there's one, there's one section toward the end of the book when Hastings pushes back and even, for me, voiced my issues with this, where he says to Poirot, you know, do you really think that the big four would be able to devastate the world order and, and bring about chaos? And Poirot does make the point that the Russian Revolution, which had happened only about 10 years before this book right. came out, was doing some sort of similar things. And at this point, and even earlier in the book, there are mentions that, you know, Madame Olivier, who is a brilliant scientist, has succeeded in liberating atomic energy and harnessing it to her, to her purpose. So, you know, this is obviously obviously well before the dropping of two atomic bombs and all of the mayhem and misery of World War II. It's not like none of this could, it's not like there aren't uber villains and criminal masterminds and people that, that can wreak havoc and, and have wreaked havoc. It's well, just that it doesn't, it's, it's portrayed in a very unconvincing way throughout for me. Right. I mean, I guess you can argue that there are like the Julian Assanges of the world who kind of seem to, or, or in, in, in fictional terms, the Joker, right? Who people who mm-hmm. wield uh, an absurd amount of power for a single individual, but basically just want to watch it burn. Yeah. And so, I mean, at some yeah. at some level, I guess that is what they're doing. Um, but it's just immensely unclear. It's immensely unclear, and it's a definitely a case of lots of tell and no show, very little to no right. show, which is why it also just, it's never, we're never really made to feel that anything is um, in, in true jeopardy or anyone's in true jeopardy. And then the other related to that point is um, the issue that, you know, I was thinking as, as, um, Christy made that very direct reference to Sherlock Holmes with Poirot's twin brother um, being, you know, the the parallel to Mycroft Holmes. I was thinking about how this book really has a lot of um, Sherlock parallels, even more than um, Hastings as Watson, which, of course, we have in every <laughs> Poirot book. But right. we also have um, Vera, Countess Rosikoff, who is at least, you know, said to be this criminal mastermind and is very much seems to be filling the Irene Adler role and that she's, you know, the only woman that Poirot truly admires. Um, but the problem is, and this is the, also the problem with the big four and any of these villains in these Christie books is that the Holmes canon has Moriarty for the series and Moriarty is a series long villain. He's someone who there's continuity to that character and there's a lot of real dread that Doyle manages to create and and keep up around that character. And we just don't have, I mean, there's no character like that in these Christie novels, in either the Poirot world or the Marvel world or any of the standalones. Well, Whoever the, the criminals are, they are brought to justice or somehow vanquished and made to, you know, the world order is restored at the end of every single book. And that's not the case with Holmes. And I, and I think Holmes... You know, the Moriarty is a much more effective villain. Well, he's more he's more effective for a fairly specific reason that I think uh, you can say is a problem across Christie books. Um, in that the big villain here, you know, number four, he uh, is ultimately an actor, right? And mm-hmm. yeah. um, that means that whenever we see him throughout the book. Uh, he's in disguise of some kind. And we've had this problem in Mm -hmm. other Christie books that, like, she really loves her bad guys wearing disguises. 
But because mm-hmm. it's always a matter of slipping into another character, it's actually in one w- it's in one way more threatening, I suppose, from a real fear of the unknown. But at the same time, part of the reason why Moriarty is terrifying is because you know who Moriarty is. Yeah. No, that's actually a really good point. I mean, I think that the only fear that she's interested in playing on is the fear of the unknown, which goes into the sort of overarching paranoia and kind of conspiracy-mindedness of a lot of these thriller stories, whereas Doyle in the Home series was creating a very specific villain who we could be, you know, we could be scared of what he actually wanted to do and the kind of person that he was. I think she's just, she's really preying upon paranoia and this idea of, the upheaval of a world order. And I think, you know, obviously you can fall into the trap and I'm sure that I am right now to a certain extent of reading too much into history and having the hindsight of history. But Doyle and Sherlock Holmes was created within a fairly, compared to the 20th century, a fairly stable social system and world order of Victorian England. And Christie was writing, of course, during the turmoil of the 20th century. And I think she really wants to reassure her readers at the end of every story that no, 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 everything is fine. There is no monster out there. The monster that's been vanquished to a certain extent really is the person who has the ability to shapeshift and be unknown. The person who you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know that they're actually psychotic or a murderer, but we will know by the end because we have good people who are just as powerful for the side of good, like Hercule Poirot and Jane Marple and everything will be okay. And you can now put the book down and have sweet dreams. And that's kind of the purpose of these books. But it, you know, when we're when we're supposed to be scared, it just sometimes it's not quite powerful enough for me. And in the mystery puzzles, it's not a problem because the mystery puzzles are not really driven by the fear of that. They're driven just by the the cleverness of the mechanics of the plot. But in these books, I, I think that weakness becomes more apparent. I think that's I think that's fair. Or, or alternately, I think that there are other spy novels and spy novelists who can pull off a sense of ambiguous dread, but for some reason her need to wrap it up undermines that. If you're going to play on creeping dread and paranoia, you kind of have to just own that. Yeah, exactly. And it's like she never fully commits to it. And, um, and I, and I also find, and in this book, it was more obvious to me than others, but in the big four, we have Number one, the the Li Cheng Yan, he represents ingenuity. Mm-hmm. And number two, represents wealth or power. That's the American businessman. And number three, represents intelligence and, and right. sort of wisdom. And all of those things are very powerful notions. And they're in no way who we're supposed to be most afraid of. We're supposed to be most afraid of a freaking actor. Right. And <laughs> the, the only reason I can think that we're supposed to be afraid of him is because we just, we can't get a handle on him. He doesn't know, you know, this idea of like not knowing one's place or getting uppity and sort of, you know, transcending social class or transcending gender or transcend, you know, there's just a lot of these sort of conservatism that's inherent in these Christie stories. Sometimes it's charming. uh, And in the same book, too, it can be charming, but it can also be really problematic. The conservatism um, there, I, I don't even know if it's about social. I mean, it is at some level about social class. It's just, um, I think in a really bizarre way, when you're talking about somebody who's like most famous detective is an outside foreigner, 
who is essentially a little bit costumed, right? I mean, that's how we recognize him, and that's mm-hmm. how in this book he gets away with it at the ending, you know? The idea mm-hmm. that if you do not actually present, like, your proper outside face to the world, that is somehow more dangerous than anything else. Unless you're, unless you're using it to fight crime. Costuming of any kind is somehow suspicious because you are not presenting whatever, like, the proper version of you is expected to be presented and known to the world. It's a very paranoid stance that, like, people who don't sort of expose everything about themselves and who feel that they have anything to hide or anything to be private about, that there must be something wrong with that. It's not exactly what she's saying, but there's just, there's just elements of that buried in here. And, and I think buried in a lot of these novels and in this one, it Mm -hmm. just comes out more so than in others. But in any case, we should probably talk about the adaptation of this novel because this is an early Christie novel, even though it's a weird and tricky Poirot, it's an early Poirot. But in the Suchet series, it's an extremely late episode Mm -hmm. and boy, is that an important part of the, of the episode. Yeah. It's, I mean, (laughs) one of the last episodes they ever did. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, just as an aside, is that the episode was actually written by Mark Gaddis, Mr. Mycroft Holmes, and co-creator, and co-creator of, Sherlock. of the overall of the whole Sherlock series, and it had a little bit of a um, like they would the episode was punctuated by the those blotches of newspaper headlines mm-hmm. that yep. maybe it's just because I knew it was Mark Gaddis, but it felt vaguely Sherlockian to me. It felt very um, Sherlockian, like a lot yeah. of it did, and I um you know I think uh, in the in the book itself um, I think that. Jap's relationship to Poirot um, takes on more of a Lestrade characteristic than we see in sure. a lot of cases. And yeah, that's another another Holmes peril. Absolutely, yeah. Um, like we see in this book, like way more than we've seen in other things. That Jap feeds Poirot information, and he like gives him cases, like and hires him as a consulting detective, which we don't really get as clear of a sense of as we do in this book and I think that also crosses over a little bit into the adaptation where instead of having Hastings as the partner in solving the crime it's Jap absolutely I sort of like that change because we also get so much Poirot and Hastings it was nice to see Poirot and Jap alone for a bit oh yeah I really um you know, I always really liked their relationship on this series, and it, you know, it, it had the sense of, and the whole episode, of course, did because it was meant to. Had the sense of seeing old friends. Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's um the first ten or fifteen minutes, and when what what Mark Gaddis chose to do when he adapted this, I think very smartly, given that they were going for this nostalgic, melancholic tone, is that the entire episode is framed around the death of Poirot. So whereas in the book, Hastings only believes that Poirot is dead for, you know, 10 pages, mm-hmm. 10 out of 200 pages, it's uh, you know 90% of the episode or maybe 75% of the episode. And um, the first 15 minutes are the old crew getting back together to toast Poirot and Hastings actually chokes up when he tries to think of a toast and they're, they're all sort of devastated. Well then, Captain Hastings, a few words. Really? Me? Oh. Well, I don't really... I don't know what to say, isn't it? Gosh. 
my friends. I know. To my master. The best of masters. To our dear friend. To Monsieur Hercule Poirot. God rest his soul. It's funny too because this this was in there's a bit of an anachronism with how much they've even aged and this is where I think the series as a television series takes on an importance that um, trumps the anachronism here in that the series as we've said many times takes place circa 1936 sometimes it's 1934 sometimes it's 35 36 and the timeline slowly inches along toward the eve of World War II. And there are a couple of indicators here that set us squarely in 1939. Mm-hmm. So we're actually only three years ahead of season one, which <laughs> was, was filmed was in a, 1989, it, it which is 24 years ago. It was a rough three years solving crime. <laughs> Yeah, it's it really was a rough three like, years really for these like people how, because it's really like how they say um, presidents, you know, age faster than the rest of the population. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, they aged yeah. like <laughs> like what? Apparently, apparently, times? being being Mr. Poirot's secretary turns you into an, an old cat lady. Which I also had a little bit of an issue. Like, why couldn't? Why is Miss Lemon? She seems to be living alone with a cat. Well, we we I, only I, see I, we only see her for a few minutes. Perhaps there is a husband there. Perhaps, perhaps she's no, she's Miss Lemon no more, but she, there's a cat and she's stressing out about the fact that the post comes later and later every day. It, it, it didn't seem like she was living the fullest life that I wanted for Miss Lemon. Let's, let's just put it that way. But, um, yeah, so I mean, three years have passed within the world of the show, but obviously a quarter, nearly a quarter century passed from 89 to 2013 and they just go with that. And it's so effective because they look so faded and oh my god, and I don't know. It just it it tugged at my heartstrings. I'll say that it tugged at mine too. Jap, Jap actually was um, Jap was actually sort of holding up best. Yo, he oh he he totally was, and he seemed the least tragic. I mean, he he was still married, and he had become assistant commissioner. I think in only um, in only three years. Yeah, <laughs> in only three years exactly. But moving on, the adaptation draws on a lot of the miniature mystery puzzles. They make a lot out of the chess puzzle, which we went through. That's the first one that we get, but the leg of mutton is there. There, there are a bunch of others. Um, there's a device that they use with the journalist. Yeah. The journalist is not in the book. He was annoying, but he was essentially just a consistent catalyst, Mm -hmm, um, to, to keep things moving along. And there was a lot of simplification, but I think the most interesting thing that was done, and I very much commiserate with them given how much of an issue, we both had with how ridiculous the big four's villainous plot or lack thereof was, is that there kind of is no villainous plot instead of it. There being an actual big four who were planning world domination slash dictatorship of anarchy. This all boils down to number four, the actor having an unrequited crush on an actress from 15 years earlier. (laughs) And he's essentially just trying to impress her. That's what it boils down to. And the other three people are not part of it. Two of the three are abducted, the American millionaire and the French scientist, and then drugged. Right. And they're staged at this abandoned theater and made to look as if they're part of this cabal, but they're they're not. There is no conspiracy. And that to me is an improvement just because I'm sure I you know, I imagine Mark Gaddis read it and said, 
Um, I think he's even on record as saying that the book is kind of a mess. And by the way, Agatha Christie is also on record. She, in years, years later, referred to it as, quote, that rotten book, unquote. <laughs> and I think that I think that had as much to do with the time of her, yeah, her, of her sure. life when it was put out. But she also knew that it was slapped together and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily her best. So I, I didn't mind that change, although... I mean, it was a little bit silly that it all really boiled down to an unrequited crush. Although I How will, did you feel about that? I mean, it didn't bother me because it, the book bothered me more. We should get to the ranking of this novel. The first category up is plot mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this, the big four might get the lowest score we've ever given a Christie book for plot mechanics. Because to me, this is where we know for sure that this was a rush job and not ideal in terms of stuffing a whole bunch of mystery puzzles into a thriller plot that's just not very well done. So we're going to give this a 4 out of 10. Actually, I stand corrected that it's not as low as we've gone. We gave a lower score to Secret of Chimneys, and and fair enough. But we're, we're going to go with a 4 out of 10. Yes, Catherine? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So moving on to plot credibility, uh, I'm going to hard pass yeah. a hard pass on this one because this is... Hard pass, yeah. You know, my God. It's not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we sp- we've spent a long time, probably too long, complaining about how unconvincing and ludicrous we found this plot to be, so we won't spend any more time. I- I'd say a 2 out of 10. Yep. Series-long okay. characters. Um, I th- That's everything good about this book. And, like, it's good stuff. It's, like, charming characterization and, like, good dialogue. And um, I really liked Poirot's affection towards Hastings, which is more than we sometimes get. And Jap had a bunch of good moments. I, I was a fan. Yeah, there are so many really good moments between Poirot and Hastings in particular. I mean, in a series filled with good moments, there were some particularly good moments here. And I just want to read one of them, which is perhaps as bromantic as this pair ever gets. <clears throat> this is when Hastings realizes that Poirot has delivered his wife to safety and that, you know, Hastings did everything he could to not give away Poirot's location or to lure him to to that lair, one of, like, the 80 lairs that people (laughs) get lured to in this book. Um, So this is Hastings speaking, of course. I turned my head aside. Poirot put his hand on my shoulder. There was something in his voice that I had never heard there before. You like not that I should embrace you or display the emotion. I know well. I will be very British. I will say nothing, but nothing at all. Only this. That in this last adventure of ours... The honors are all with you, and happy is the man who has such a friend as I have. And that ends the chapter. And um, it's very, it's very tender um, and, and touching. It's very touching. And can I, can I, um, then on that note, point to my other favorite Poirot and Hastings please. moment? Of course. This is Poirot speaking. Uh, they've just had another disastrous moment in a series of many of them. And Poirot says, It was a near thing, that, but clumsily, all the same, for I had no suspicion, at least hardly any suspicion. Yes, but for my quick eyes, the eyes of a cat. Hercule Poirot might now be crushed out of existence. A terrible calamity for the world. And you too, Mona me, though that would not be such a national catastrophe. Thank you. I said coldly. (laughs) (laughs) 
there are just so many good moments. And they're also, I mean, part of the Hastings Poirot bromance or relationship is, of course, also the gentle ribbing that Christie gives Hastings throughout, even in his own narrative voice. And there are three separate occasions on which Hastings is the unwitting rube of Poirot, essentially, where he's set up for a fall and he doesn't realize it until the fall has happened. In one case, Hastings is actually... Um, put in a really bad disguise and made to be the personal secretary to the American millionaire. And um, he only finds out after the fact that Poirot was like, well, of course it was a terrible disguise. And of course he was going to know that it was you. So obviously we really enjoyed Hastings and Poirot in this. This is where I think this, this book excelled. Let's give the characterization of Hastings and Poirot its due and give them, let's say an eight. That sounds good. I, yeah, it's great. Okay, cool. So next category is book-specific characters. <laughs> These are pretty bad. I honestly couldn't even... I mean, the big four themselves are, except for number four, forgettable slash laughable. I mean, Madame Olivier, who's supposed to be a brilliant scientist, I was never impressed by. Same goes for Abe Ryland. We never even really see Lee Chang yen um, Countess Rosikoff, they keep on saying, is really brilliant, but... I, I made reference to this earlier. If you actually read the short story where she's referenced, um, what's interesting is that she's actually an incredibly bad jewel thief, and Poirot catches her really easily. The only reason why he thinks that she's brilliant is that she cops to being guilty really quickly and makes it really easy on him. Um <laughs> And, and and this will actually, when we get to stuck in his time in a second, this will this will be useful. So it's worth quoting because it's it's insane. So from the story, he says, "Mon Dieu, quelle femme! Not a word of argument, of protestation, of bluff. One quick glance, and she had sized up the position correctly. I tell you, Hastings, a woman who can accept defeat like that with a careless smile will go far. So that's why she's a brilliant woman because she basically gave up." and gave in, which is all sorts of problematic. But So I wasn't even that impressed with Countess Rosikoff. So, yeah, the one-off characters really weren't working for me. I don't know. What are you thinking? Like a, uh, I don't know, like a three? Yeah, I think I think three feels right. I think we actually gave a three to the one-off characters in Murder on the Links, which were similarly weak, but not quite as weak as in the Mysterious Affair style. So that's, that feels right to me. Uh, if we're going to talk about setting on tone, on the plus side, we get a lot of setting and a lot of tone. On the downside, those settings include uh, an exploding mountain, leaping out of moving trains, a really, really a lot of boats. Um, so in other words, I, I don't I don't think the setting or tone were good, but they were distinct. Let's, let's not forget the poison arrow dart in a cigarette. <laughs> Who could ever forget that? <laughs> they were yeah, they were present, but they were bad. I think that in the mysterious of Eric styles, there was a lack of setting and tone, and we gave it a four. And I kind of think that when you have a setting and tone that are as bad yet present here, it's sort of a wash, and I don't think we should really be rewarding it. But given its presence, perhaps a 4 out of 10, and another 4 out of 10, which is the lowest we've ever given for setting and tone, is appropriate. I feel like that's fair. <laughs> okay. There's certainly, that it's a big fall from the 10 out of 10 that we gave the man in the brown suit. So then we come to ways in which this novel is stuck in its own time. The big issue here, you know, our number one is a Chinese man. And um, because of that, there are many references to him and to various Chinamen 
and henchmen, and they are almost all problematic and terrible mm. and cringeworthy, mm. and, and there are a bunch of them. And we don't have to go through all of them, but perhaps one of the worst is when Hastings just flat out says, and I'm quoting here, not that I had ever succeeded in being able to distinguish one Chinaman from another. That's a direct <sighs> quote from the book. A little earlier than that, Hastings makes reference to a mind most subtle and oriental, um, which let's just put aside, you know, who, you know, obviously oriental at that time was a fine way of, of referring to one who was Chinese, uh, even though it's not now. But I don't know what a, uh, I don't know how a mind can have a certain ethnicity. That's just all, all sorts of ways of offensive. And then I'm not even going to read them out because I don't want to have to be forced to, to do the voice. But there's a um, there's a dialogue with a Chinese servant oh in one of the it's miniature mystery puzzles really, that is the most really cringeworthy. It's really really bad. Just take our word for it, um, or you probably noticed it if you read if you read this one yourself. So just lots of stuff like that. Um, we also you know we get the slur for uh, a Chinese person that we've come across before. There's a little bit of the usual isolationism. Hastings refers to somewhat repulsive-looking foreigners. There's some reference to something called a Japanese trick, which I don't even know what that means. And, yeah, I mean, otherwise, it's not it's not so bad. There's actually one moment in which Hastings makes an incredibly sexist remark about female scientists. He says, it has always seemed to me extraordinary that a woman should go so far in the scientific world. I should have thought a purely masculine brain was needed for such work. And it's such a baldly sexist statement that she's she's clearly sort of making fun of Hastings in that moment. Like, wow, I didn't realize ladies could be scientists. So that that was cool. But so I, my thing is, I, I don't think this book does great, but there are certainly books that have done worse. I think we were thinking about deducting somewhere around five or maybe four points. Yeah, like five. Uh, yeah, either way is fine. Um, it's it's the Chinese stuff that's just really, really cringeworthy. Yeah, yeah it's really, really cringeworthy. I mean, I think because there's, I think, I think just for all of that alone, we should give it four deductions, and there's really not much else. But like that, it is worth four solid points. I'd also say um, definitely, and, and also because I hate to say this, but there's a track record in these books of the exact same thing happening that we've commented on yeah. multiple times before. Yeah. There are certainly books that generally probably because they're only dealing with white people and with <laughs> British people that don't run into that problem. It just, she seems to run into the problem when people of other ethnicities well, or races particularly, or whatever it, Particularly Chinese people. Yeah, you're right. You're <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. So let's go with four deductions on that. So our final tally for the big four is four for plot mechanics, two for plot credibility, eight for detective characterization, three for one-off characters in the book, four for setting and tone, and four deductions, which gives us a grand total of 17 and that puts the big four in second to last place, just one point ahead of the secret chimneys. And just to refresh our list here, because it's been a couple of weeks since we did a novel, our current ranking is as follows. In first place, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. In second place, The Man in the Brown Suit. In third place, The Secret Adversary. In fourth place, The Murder on the Links. In fifth place, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. In sixth place, the big four, and in seventh place, the secret of chimneys. 
Well, so that is our episode. Join us next week for another Poirot short story, this time The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb. And in the meantime, you can always uh, email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can follow me personally at Kemper Donovan. You can follow Catherine at Brobcat. You can follow us on Instagram at allaboutthedame. And as always, we urge you to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to this podcast. See you next time. See you next week. See you next week.